Hello and welcome back to What in the World, a podcast for you, the busy professional, wanting to know what on earth is going on in the ever-changing, transitioning industry sectors of minerals, energy and supply chain. Each episode, we choose a topic or recent announcement within the broader resource industry and we unpack it, look at it from all sides and discuss how the issues will affect your business. We look for opportunities, challenges, and reality. We'll seek clarity in the chaos of change. Today, we're discussing critical minerals. Why it's such a big deal all of a sudden, what are they, and what it means for us here in Australia. My name is James Scotland, and as always, I'm joined by the Senior Policy Advisor from Australian Industry Group, uh, Tenant Reid. Hello, Tenant. G'day. And by Paul Hudson, a business and industry commentator with a special interest in change, improvement and innovation. Hi again, Paul. Hi, James. How are you? I'm well. Today's episode is brought to you thanks to the support of the Australian Industry Group. AI Group is a peak national employer organisation representing businesses in the traditional, innovative and emerging industry sectors. AI Group has been acting on behalf of businesses across Australia for nearly 150 years. AI Group now has a dedicated section for businesses in the minerals, mining and energy sectors. And it's my pleasure to be the general manager of that offering. For more details, head over to aigroup.com.au. So let's talk about critical minerals. In his first 100 days on the job, American President Joe Biden ordered a full review of critical minerals, the options, the opportunities and the challenges for America, and he asked for particular impact for America and the world. He saw critical minerals as a big deal. Last month, the Australian government released a roadmap for resource technology and critical minerals. In the preamble, it said Australia has significant reserves of the critical minerals and metals which will drive the modern global economy. It said, however, because the majority of primary ores are shipped overseas for processing, Australia derives only a small share of the potential overall benefit. Australia could capture greater benefit by undertaking value-added and manufacturing here. So it seems Australia has significant resources of critical minerals and could possibly generate increased benefits by moving up the value chain. And this could grow as the critical minerals grow in importance globally. Certainly, uh, President Biden thought it was important, and so does the Australian government. So what's it all about? Perhaps I could start with you, Paul. What exactly are critical minerals? What are they? Where are they? What are they used for? Give us an intro. Look, great question, James. And in fact, uh, different countries can can often uh, use the term critical minerals in different ways, depending on the focus of their country. But but in Australia, Geoscience Australia identifies critical minerals as metals, non-metals and minerals that are considered vital for the economic well-being of the world's major and emerging economies, yet where their supply may be at risk either due to geological scarcity, geopolitical issues, trade policy or other factors. So, so they're critical both from a, an importance, perhaps to your industrial base and, and to the, the overall economy, um, but there's some risk about access or supply around those, uh, those minerals. 
Um, now, you know, there are a long, long list of them and they, uh, a lot of them and the rare earths that we'll also talk about, which are often uh, grouped with critical minerals, um, are a lot of those are supplied out of China. Um, Australia has quite a, a footprint and, and ability to a capacity, if you like, to produce more critical minerals and rare earths. Um, and they're used in a whole range of new economy, if you like, uh, uh, equipment, um, could be in uh, uh, LCD panels, in, in batteries, in electric vehicles, in uh, uh, magnets, um, and in a whole range of other, other key things that are uh, important for uh, the advanced economy. So that's that's probably where I'll start uh, start with uh, James, and we can we can further the discussion from here. You're on mute, James. I hit the wrong button. We will take that out, I guess. Uh, that's a great. Hang on. Pause. Yeah, that's a good summary, Paul. I, I think uh, critical minerals have sort of bounced into importance as uh, the world has started moving away from, you know, uh, petrol-driven machines into to electric vehicles, more screens, lots more screens in our houses thanks to, to COVID, and we're starting to see that critical minerals um, are needed in so many, so many different uh, environments than they were before. But this brings up a bit of a, uh, an issue. You say that a lot of them are in China or in competing countries. I know uh, our friend over at uh, Perth USA Centre in the University of WA, uh, a tenant, tells a story of how Japan and China had a problem and China withheld some critical minerals and it closed Panasonic down within a couple of days. Uh, and they, they had a sort of a political battle that affected industry. Do you see uh, critical minerals having a geopolitical impact? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's there's several challenges that that uh, come to mind around critical minerals. Some of them, the supply just really needs to expand globally because demand is growing so much. I put lithium particularly in in that category. Uh, some of them, there are serious concerns about the sustainability or the human rights impacts or otherwise of where and how they are currently produced. So cobalt uh, is, is particularly in, in that category. And then some of them have been the focus of real uh, geopolitical tussles and rare earths have been especially in that category. So uh, back in 2010, China was the biggest producer of rare earths at that time, and, and they basically still are. Th these are not particularly rare, despite their name, but they're in very low concentrations in most places and it's uh, quite a difficult process to extract them and, uh, and process them. In 2010, China reduced its export quotas by 40% and the government said that was necessary to protect the environment. Prices went through the roof. Japan was particularly concerned because they perceived that they, this was an unofficial ban on exports to them uh, in response to a territorial dispute. Uh, so then what happened, and this will be a, a, an illustrative um uh, occurrence for what might happen uh, in our 
discussions of rare earths today, would-be competing producers started to pile into the market given that prices were so high and there were these concerns about China. But then in 2014, the World Trade Organization ruled that the Chinese restrictions were discriminatory and the following year, China responded by relaxing the quotas. Prices for rare earths dropped through the floor and some of the would-be competitors who had piled in got into financial difficulties and exited the market. Um, so, you know, there was a real roller coaster ride for uh, people and industries using rare earths. They've continued to grow in importance since, and, you know, tensions over uh, trade and over um, geopolitics with China are, are much higher now than they were uh, 10 years ago. Uh, but, still the case that China's got some pretty big economic advantages as a processor of rare earths. And if, uh, if all that happens is that places like Australia increase production of rare earths, it may not make China any less central than it currently is to that global supply chain. So it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a, a pickle for some time to come, I reckon. Yeah, one of those typical minerals mining industry type situations where there is a high reward, but boy, high risk and great complexity attached to it. Yeah, just picking up something you said before, uh, are critical minerals and rare earth the same thing? No, there's a there's a uh, a long list, uh, multiple long lists of what counts as a critical mineral in different countries. Rare earths tend to be on that list, but there's there's definitely more on there than that. And uh, lithium and cobalt, because of their their uses in batteries, uh, have really grown in prominence on that list uh, for for most jurisdictions in recent years. Uh, and anything that uh, the lack of access to it might put a serious crimp on your economy. Uh, is um, and you get it out of the ground is is probably uh, a critical mineral. So is that coal? Uh, you could put that on the list. I don't think we have it on our list currently, um, and it's uh, it's certainly one that a lot of people are looking for alternatives to. I was just uh, being being cheeky there, I guess, but it's a good question. Um, uh, uh, Paul, where? Are- where are other critical minerals in Australia? Are they are they are they centred? I know that there's operations in New South Wales in WA. I think there's some in Queensland. I think they're spread all over the place, aren't they? Um, look, they are. They are concentrated in certain aspects, obviously, due to the geological changes. But uh, but but a, a lot of the states um, and and the Northern Territory have critical minerals. Uh, have a real focus on critical minerals, um, and we we do have the capacity in some. Uh, uh, in some critical minerals to to expand quite rapidly. I mean, for example, lithium is one. We're already the largest producer in the world of lithium, um, and we've got some of the largest reserves of lithium. Um, that's not the case in some of the other ones. Um, some of them we do have quite a, a large uh, ability to increase, like vanadium, for example, um, where we've got quite large vanadium deposits Um and, and that's obviously uh, a lot of vanadium flow batteries. It's quite a big, big uh, uh, increase in the amount of vanadium uh, 
being demanded around the world for that. So uh, they are quite spread around. Um, and then it really does depend on well, what, what do we do with this? Um, and I think that's the always been the age old issue in Australia. Do we, uh, do we mildly process them or do we send the raw product overseas or do we actually look at doing something perhaps a little bit cleverer with them in Australia? Um, and uh, and maybe doing more of the processing and potentially even into manufacturing, um, and uh, that that's the potentially part of the critical part of the critical minerals uh, strategy as well. I should have had this to hand. I read somewhere where there's something like I think I think if I remember thirty five uh, grams or something in every iPhone. Uh, 35 grams of, of critical minerals or minerals in uh, every uh, iPhone, which doesn't sound a lot, except when you make five billion phones, <laughs> you're adding up to to a to a fair to a fair bit. Um, so the critical minerals and and rare earths are becoming massively important to our lives. That's just that's just phones. There's also cars and screens or whatever. Um, Tenant, you had a, a thought. Well, yeah, just that the the concerns about the security and resilience of supply chains that lie behind a lot of critical minerals discussion, they cut both ways. Uh, so in in sectors where or aspects of uh, minerals where Australia is already l- the leading supplier, like lithium, uh, it may be that uh, customers start to think about diversifying away from us uh, because you wouldn't want one maritime uh, union dispute to uh, paralyze your entire um, supply chain for getting lithium, for example. We are a we are a stable place. We are a good place to do business, uh, but. Uh, if we've learnt one thing in in recent years, it's that having a single point of failure uh, is a uh, a dangerous thing for any supply chain. So, in some areas, uh, the, the the critical minerals agenda will be driving uh, investment towards us. Uh, in others, there may there may be a limit on just how successful we can get. Um, when the diversity of supply chain has a value in itself. I think this is the, the story that we're painting, isn't it? The, the, the mining industry has always been, miners have always been prepared to go into very dangerous locations to, to extract the mine, you know, like go and fight headhunters in order to get, to get minerals back in the day. Uh, but now there's a, a geopolitical aspect to it, not just the danger and the complexities of of getting the minerals out of the ground and then what to do with it, export it or process it. But now there's this complexity about, well, who can we trade with, who can't we trade with, who wants to trade with us? How do you get through that? Is that a government issue or is that a business issue or what's the answer there? I, I think this is a multidimensional problem. Uh, the uh, the concerns for for businesses in trying to anticipate turns in not just public policy but in in diplomacy and and grand strategy changes uh, among the, the the major nations that's that's a difficult place to be I think policymakers also need to think pretty hard about the um, the strategies that they're pursuing. I mean, if we if we think back uh, eighty years, 
to the uh, the lead up more than eighty years to the lead up to World War Two and the Pacific tensions, uh, access to resources and. Uh, the, the, the denial of access to resources to constrain um, geopolitical ambitions was, was a, a, a very important part of the dynamics between Imperial Japan and the United States and Britain and Australia and, and, and other powers. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to see uh, another um, hot war uh, between great powers in uh, East Asia or the Pacific or anywhere else. Um, and so we're going to have to feel our way through a period of great change with uh, China re reclaiming uh, its uh, historic role in the region and and emerging as a, as a world power. Um we're going to have to find our way through that, notwithstanding that there are some pretty important political differences uh, between uh, the rest of the advanced economies and China. So I've had a good talk about the geopolitical aspects of it and the complexities, and, and one of the reasons why uh, they're critical minerals is because there's a, there's a political aspect to it. Uh, the, the other aspect is just the fact that the built, the built world in which we live in is growing so rapidly in this digital age. We're seeing this issue of uh, silicon chips not being able to keep track with the demands of electric vehicles needing a lot more uh, technology, uh, 5G phones and 5G computers needing a lot more technology. Car manufacturers are fighting with, with phone manufacturers who are fighting with game uh, boy manufacturers who are fighting with AI equipment to get this silicon chips. They can't make it. Uh, someone, uh, uh, there was a report that said America is looking at building a factory. It will take them five years to build a factory. So we're going to have shortages in, uh, uh, shortages in the value-add part of the critical minerals, and there's going to be a demand for the critical minerals themselves. Um, what's your thoughts on this idea that Australia can play a bigger value, a bigger bigger role by adding value? If it's that complex to add value, can we do it here in Australia, or should we dig and dig and chip? Uh, maybe Paul, I don't care. Yeah, sure, James. Look, I think there's a there is a great opportunity, and I think it it probably requires us looking at the market and looking at the the way some of those critical minerals are are produced um, and how they're used um, and what makes then sense for Australia to, to play uh, its role within the global economy. Um, and I think it picks up two things there. You talked about silicon chips and uh, and there, there is a real issue around that, but silicon is not actually a critical mineral. So I think we also need to think about how um, not just silicon, but iron, um, copper. I mean, you can't really do much in electricity without copper, um, uh, silver, uh, zinc, nickel, a lot of the other minerals that Australia is already a considerable uh, producer of and potentially could be more, and how maybe combining some of the critical minerals with some of the other mineral work we do with manufacturing capacity and with other supply chain considerations could really open it up. And I think the other point is as well, you're talking about the iPhone example with about 35 grams um, in each iPhone, is that... Um, Part of the value adding here is really looking at the circular economy 
um, you know, how do we how do we not just uh, mine and use uh, these critical minerals and rare earths uh, at a, as a as a once off and then they're disposed of some way, but how do we extract them back um, and reuse them and do that efficiently and economically um, so that we actually uh, are, are creating value that way as well um, and not just as a linear a linear path. Yeah, I'd I'd add that you know, with the rate of growth in demand for uh, some of these minerals, of course, there are going to be periods when, you know, the supply chain hasn't quite caught up uh, and and prices go really high. There's also going to be periods when there's a blip in demand and the supply chain, uh, the supply side of things is more than enough and prices will crash. That's like, that's minerals. Uh cyclical and and uh, volatile uh, but increasingly the um, the recovery of um, critical minerals from past products and circular economy is going to play uh, a bigger and bigger role in uh, the overall market uh, particularly uh, as for some of these demand uh, growth rates start to to tail off uh, now we're, we're some way away from that, and you know, lithium uh, has has got a lot of demand uh, still to come. But it was uh, probably fifteen years ago or, or so that people thought that silicon was going. The availability and the price of silicon was going to be a, a major bottleneck and constraint on solar power growth, and. Those barriers were more than overcome, uh, and the uh, you know if the demand is there and people believe that the demand is going to be there, uh, the supply will follow. The, these are these are not uh, elements that are um, that hard to find if the capital can be invested uh, to extract them and to process them. So in the long term, the, the real value ultimately is going to come from the use of these things uh, in renewable energy, in embedding uh, energy storage and intelligence into a whole range of products. Uh, but there's plenty of money to be made along the way uh, as well in uh, making those products and in providing the materials for those products. But end use is, is ultimately the driver of the whole thing. Which brings up the uh, the opportunity of substitutions. Is is there substitutions for some of these critical minerals? Can you uh, are we getting anywhere close to saying we don't need silicon anymore because we figured out a better way of doing it, or we don't need lithium because we've figured out new ways of running batteries? What's what's going on there? Does anyone know? I've got a couple of thoughts, uh, which is that. It's, it's very dependent on the specific material. So lithium, lithium-ion batteries, there's lots of uh, potential competitors in labs or uh, on the drawing boards of, um, of energy storage startups who are, who are gunning for lithium-ion, but it really looks like lithium-ion for applications like uh, electric vehicles especially is you know it's got a dynamic going of uh, scale and learning driving down costs leading to more deployment leading to more scale and learning 
that that dynamic I think is unstoppable and uh, lithium ion is is not going to be overtaken for those applications. But there's other materials where there are real pressures to diversify away from them or substitute away. And so the, the, the concerns that people have about cobalt, uh, the environmental impact of the way that it's extracted in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where most of it comes from now, uh, and the, the human rights um, impacts of the way it's extracted now, are driving lots of battery makers to look for ways to minimise the amount of cobalt in their lithium-ion batteries. And uh, that that is going to have an impact. So yeah, it, it, it's very dependent on the specific material and the drivers for using it or not using it. Uh, but where something's uh, just you know, the best fit for the purpose as lithium ion seems to be for many energy storage purposes, not all of them by any means, then uh, the demand future for that looks pretty strong. Well, that's good for Australia. Um, one of the issues, though, has been that it takes so much energy to get critical minerals out of the ground. Uh, and so to use it, uh, there's, a, there's a footprint attached to it that might be difficult in Australia. Uh, I know you've spent a bit of time looking at this, Paul. Have you got any thoughts on, on what's the answer there? Uh, it, personally, I think circular economy is a great answer, but at some stage we're still going to have to go and get some stuff out of the ground. Yeah, and I think a lot of this comes down to the supply and demand. I mean, as prices go up, then it makes it more economic for people to uh, to, uh, to 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 increase the supply into the market by um, you know the economics change so so there are some natural balances that happen here but I'm also aware in in Australia that for example out of out of the uh, the, the spoil pile if you like out of some of the mineral pro mineral uh, uh, some of the uh, non-critical mining if you like um, can actually pick up the rare earths and critical minerals out of that as well a lot of these are co-located uh, geologically. Um, so there are ways of so sort of going back and, and, and to, to sort of past mining operations uh, where perhaps you've already got quite a bit of the infrastructure already in place. And actually, uh, you know, as the, the economics and the demand for some of these critical minerals and rare earths have, have, have increased, uh, it does make it more economic than it did at the, at the past. And I guess there's lots of examples of that in the past where things that, that we, uh, we saw were a waste um, has actually now become quite a, a treasure, if you like. Back into those tailings then. <laughs> well, absolutely. Go, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, there's, there's trace things, but, uh, but uh, over a large scale could, uh, could actually be quite an economic resource. And I'd add that uh, there, there is an environmental footprint and an emissions footprint to resource extraction, uh, but there are also opportunities to reduce that uh, input, uh, both, both through circular economy but through reducing the carbon intensity of the energy and the energy intensity of the extraction for primary minerals production. Uh, and, you know, you... In the, in the challenge of building a net zero emissions economy, like that really is an economy-wide challenge. You can't fully decarbonise any one element of the economy by focusing on it alone because so many of the emissions 
uh, come from connections to other parts, the embodied emissions in the materials that go into the equipment to extract minerals, uh, the uh, transport systems that they depend on, the source of electricity uh, or, or heat energy for the uh, processing uh, process. So, uh, you know, you need to bootstrap uh, a process of decarbonisation. You, you can't get to zero in one leap. Um, and so managing and uh, having a good story to tell uh, and, and a truthful story to tell on the emissions reduction pathway for the, the mineral sector, that's, that's important. Uh, the fact that there are residual emissions or, or continuing emissions at the moment should not be a knockdown argument that, you know, the, these aren't sustainable activities at all. Uh, they need a pathway for continuous improvement. No, and, and for a large amount of the critical minerals in the rare earth, they are in remote locations. So there is going to be a transport, uh, a transport footprint. There's just no way around that. Even if you value add on site, there is still... There's still transport, and that's a that's a discussion for another day. Uh, just to finish off, for manufacturers in Australia, uh, the critical minerals could affect their supply chain without them knowing about it. This whole idea about the silicon chip, if you're trying to buy a car in Australia at the moment, you're pretty much restrained because you can't get cars because they're not being manufactured because they can't get silicon chips. Um, Ford is saying, I think it's going to cost them $4 billion for the next quarter because they can't make cars. Um, I, I think we've, we've had a good discussion today because we've talked about the fact that critical minerals is, is a confusing, complex issue uh, that's going to affect all of us in some way or other. There are opportunities, uh, there's financial opportunities, but there's also plenty of challenges. And the challenges come in not only business sense, but also political sense. Have you got any final words before we wrap up? I think it's a complex, exciting issue that we could should keep talking about. But uh, maybe start with you, Tenet. Any final words? Yeah, look, I'd, I would just say that in terms of what businesses can do for themselves, this is just another reason to understand your own supply chain and uh, where are the points of failure in there, uh, how much diversity of supply option do you really have and what are your opportunities to increase that diversity? And if it, you know, if you're expanding from uh, one supplier of a critical part to three potential suppliers of a critical part, but they're all getting their inputs from one country, uh, maybe that actually isn't increasing your supply chain resilience at all. And Paul. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I would agree agree with that, Tenant. And I think it's also, I mean, I think in business, it's really that whole 360 degree scan. So, um, you know, as much as you can understand, yes, about your supply chain, uh, supply constraints, uh, but also in the competitive situation around substitutability of your products um, and what your competitors are doing, and then the demand. So how are your customers using it or how are your customers' customers using it, uh, which is often the case. And what what are their what's their context as well? Uh, because it can be sometimes that just something uh, which which isn't directly uh, attributable to your business uh, can really come at you, and it can really come out of your left field and disrupt your business if you're not 
uh, scanning out a little bit further than you normally would in terms of a sort of a linear supply chain. Uh, the other thing I'd say as well for businesses uh, that you know really want to understand a bit more about critical minerals, I, I'd highly recommend the Australian government last year uh, published the Australian Critical Minerals Prospectus 2020. Um, a lot of detail in there around projects, but probably the first uh, 10 to 20 pages give a really good understanding of of some of the applications of these critical minerals, what the competitive position is for Australia and what the capacity is for Australia, um, and will give people a really good, uh, 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 you know, so they can get, get to the point where at dinner parties they can talk about critical minerals a little bit, if they so wish. Yeah, look, I just love your dinner parties, Paul. There's no doubt <laughs> about their great fun. We said that at the beginning of the, of the podcast, we try and get some clarity in the chaos of change. And I think it's taken us the whole, uh, the whole episode, but we got there. This is about understanding your supply chain because the inputs to that supply chain are complex and it's becoming more complex as the world changes, as the politics change and as our built environment changes. Uh, it's been a great discussion. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Tenet. If anyone would like to know more about critical uh, minerals, in an upcoming webinar, Mesca will be talking to CSIRO about their report on uh, critical minerals in Australia. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, but until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.